WBZ original. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. Un, deux, trois, quatre, cinq, six, sept, huit, neuf, dix. You East Coast elitist. <laughs> Speaking in French. I really am the worst. Pulling out the Harvard. Can I do, I'll do it in Spanish for you. <laughs> Hello, everybody. Welcome into episode six, season two of Studio BZ. John Keller, Paula Eben. It is a beautiful, what is it, 80-something degrees today here in Boston? I don't know what's happening. And it's in the middle of October, but it's beautiful, and we'll take it. And the Red Sox are moving on to the ALCS. So sweet. And things are good. The Patriots are great. And we have a packed Studio BZ podcast today, starting with John Keller's big first debate in the gubernatorial race. Yeah, uh, Tuesday night, the first meeting between Charlie Baker and Jay Gonzalez. I was your humble moderator for that. I'm going to take you behind the scenes a little bit of what went on that you didn't see or hear. And also, uh, the three of us can talk about the fallout from the first encounter. I have an interview with a fascinating woman. Myra Biblowit is the president of the Breast Cancer Research Foundation, the Pink Ribbon People. This is the beginning of Breast Cancer Awareness Month, their 25th anniversary. And did you know she's a local girl? No, and I, I loved her interview with her. We're going to hear that. And the UN Climate Change Report, this got a lot of attention this week. Shocking new information about the state of our planet. We're going to talk with Eric Fisher. What does he make of this report? What changes can we make? I am not trying to become governor to manage the status quo. Look, we have 22 mayors, Democrats, independents, and Republicans, mostly Democrats and independents, who've endorsed our campaign. And I'm going to be a governor that aims high and takes on these big challenges and is honest with people about what we need to do to get there. We've been incredibly strong in developing positive working relationships. Whoa! That's sounded wow. very exciting. Jonathan Case with the funky jams. <laughs> that is done yourself. We should have had that music under the actual live <laughs> that debate is one itself. Of the hottest <laughs> montages of a debate I've ever heard. Wow! Ooh, well, I'm yeah, I'm, I'm sweating. Party with those guys. So, uh, uh, what'd you think, it, John? It was interesting. Uh, before the before we went on the air, the candidates come into the studio about. 10 minutes or so beforehand, we take some still pictures, and then there's a sort of an awkward period of where the studio's been cleared and we're getting ready. That's usually when I give my speech to make sure that participants in the debate understand who's boss yeah. and who's driving the this bus This is when here. you strike fear into the heart John of John gives us the same speech before every podcast. <laughs> yeah, Very it's frightening. Yeah, it's, it, it has something to do with a potential cocoon of horror that you might enter <laughs> if you disobeyed my, my hand signals and so forth. But uh, clearly uh, the uh, uh, experience contrast showed in the moments leading up to and I sure. thought throughout the debate. Charlie Baker's been down this road many times before. Ran and lost in 2010, ran and won in 2014. For Jay Gonzalez, first time around, he was clearly the more nervous of the two beforehand and during the debate. Uh, and then they got it on, and uh, you saw the results. Yeah. What were the What were the fireworks that you saw between them? You know, uh, it was it was quite cordial. Uh, before we yeah. went on, uh, they, the two men greeted each other. I didn't have to force them to shake hands. Uh, they, I asked if they had ever met before. They said they had, and uh, they chatted amiably beforehand. Uh, Baker, interestingly, was sort of initiating that. And uh, that's a, a, a smart psychological move. Sure. If you've just been chatting... Uh, very uh, convivially with someone, it's hard to then flip Attack the switch them. and start That's trying right. to rip their skin yeah. off. Uh, and uh, 
anyway, uh, the, the debate got going, and uh, Gonzalez, as you saw if you watched or listened to the debate, uh, had certain lines that he wanted yes. to hit on. He pulled out the Charlie card and said it should be called the Where's Charlie card. Right, a, a dig at Baker for sort of refusing challenges to ride the tea and listen to the discontent of tea riders. I was on a commuter rail recently where water was dripping down from the ceiling and people couldn't sit in the seats and they're crammed standing in the aisles. It's totally unacceptable. Uh, Governor, I think riding with riders, and I know many people have asked you to and you've refused to, uh, you'd learn a lot. Uh, I think it'd show respect to people about your wanting to understand their experience. And with the lack of urgency and okay. the fact the system hasn't been fixed, I'm surprised that commuters haven't revolted and uh, started a petition to change the name of these tea passes from Charlie Card to Where's Charlie Card? Again, uh, like a lot of uh, what Gonzalez tried to do tactically, I thought, especially after watching it later, watching the video later, that that fell a little bit flat for one reason, because you couldn't see the card. I mean, he right. said it was a Charlie card. It would have been better if he'd had a big blown-up card, although I did tell the men no props. Ah, yes. But... Uh, you know, it, it, visuals really matter in yeah. a TV debate. And let's talk about the optics because we were discussing this in the hallway before coming in. Charlie Baker is significantly six, taller. Six six, I think. Six six yes. or so. Yeah. Basketball player from Harvard, of course. Uh, and Jay Gonzalez is a smaller man. I mean, when you're in that kind, I mean, we've known since Kennedy Nixon how important optics are in a debate. But when you have that kind of differential in height between men, uh, what do you? How do you think that factors in? You know, a, a number of people have mentioned it to me since the debate aired. So clearly it was striking to people. I guess there were certain – we had a jib camera, which sort of hovers – The high angle ab- almost exacerbated High the above the action. That. I guess that really drew out the contrast. I mean, it is what it is. We did provide Mr. Gonzalez with a, a little bit of a step yeah. to stand on, uh, mainly for lighting and camera angle reasons. It was clear – the height differential is still clear. You know, I, for some voters, that that may factor in. I mean, I'm, I'm definitely a believer in the importance of visual imagery and in body language. And uh, to some extent, uh, you know, you'd have to think that uh, that might work against Gonzalez for some voters to some degree. Gonzalez joked about it afterwards with me. He said, I like being the little guy in the race, literally and figuratively. So he seems to understand that dynamic. Give a grade to each of them, if you will, in terms of how you thought they did. Obviously, Gonzalez is down, you say, a new poll out today by 35 points. Other polls have shown him down by about that many points. Governor Baker has been very popular throughout his term. Um, he has to make up a lot of ground. And in order to do that, he had to land some serious blows or has to in the next two debates if he's going to make up any of that ground. Do you think he was able to cut into it at all? Well, you asked me for grades. I don't want to shock and appall you you two, but let me just uh, take a moment to say something altruistic. Okay. I give them really? both. Really? <laughs> okay, forget it. I don't know what came over me. I haven't. I didn't need a big enough lunch. I think I'm a little bit woozy. I, I give both men an A for their altruism, for being intelligent, well-informed. It was a very civil Civic-minded and conducting a civil debate. They were I mean, grown-ups. It was refreshing to some extent to see two political figures acting like grown-ups, okay? If you wanted a Three Stooges episode, 
uh, you didn't get that. Um, but as far as strategy goes and what each guy clearly wanted to do and needs to do down the final month of this race, I mean, I would give Baker, an, uh, let's say, an A- minus uh, for coming in with sort of a rope-a-dope strategy. He doesn't want to engage with Jay Gonzalez. Right. Uh, it's actually something of a Christmas miracle that he agreed to three TV debates. Uh, the rule of thumb is when you're up by 35 points, you don't, you don't want to do any debate. You don't want to elevate your opponent and give him or her any kind of exposure they wouldn't otherwise get. Uh, but Baker came in, His uh, clearly his strategy was to, for the most part, not even look at Gonzalez, mm. just to keep uh, reciting the positives about his record. Uh, if attacked, to push back not to be a not to just roll over in the face of uh, uh, of questioning or prodding by Gonzalez and he executed it I thought uh, very effectively for Gonzalez uh, you know uh, again they may and you and I were just chatting about this Liam they may have felt that look this is the guy's first introduction to many voters his first TV debate he can't come on too strong or people are going to say well who is that that creepy little jerk right. you know you really have to be careful about that uh, having said that uh, I really felt uh, that given his standing in the polls, he had to come on strong. He had to get under Baker's skin a little bit. He had to draw a contrast in a compelling way that might almost shock the viewer at home saying, gee, I didn't realize uh, that Baker had done that. Or, uh, gosh, this guy's starting to make sense. Maybe I got to reevaluate my support for Baker. And I don't think he really did that. I think Governor Baker's strongest moment there was when Jay Gonzalez tried to portray his administration as sort of a do-nothing administration, and then he ticked he was, off all of their accomplishments and said, you can only be judged on what you have actually done uh, and listed his accomplishments. And one thing I noticed that I thought Baker did very effectively, and it was especially interesting because going back to early 2015, when Baker came in, uh, there was the fiasco with the tea. Remember, that was the winter from yes. hell. Yep. Uh, there were all sorts of other issues that came up, any one of which could easily and, uh, and accurately have been blamed on his predecessor, on the Patrick administration. He went out of his way to avoid doing that for a variety of reasons. It clearly was a strategic choice. Well, in that debate Tuesday night, he was more critical of the Patrick era mm -hmm in that one hour than I've heard him be in the last four years. And of course, Gonzalez was a Patrick-era cabinet secretary, secretary of administration. Look, the job of the governor is to actually make the tea work. And that's been what we've been focused on for the past three years. The tea was broken when we took office and it was broken from years and years of neglect. And as a result, we have made many of the investments that are required to get it moving in a different direction. Just as a last question on this, Baker does have, it would seem to me, some vulnerabilities, despite the fact that he's up by so much and he's very popular. He endorsed Jeff Deal, which Gonzalez brought up multiple times last night. Jeff Deal co-chaired the Trump campaign in Massachusetts in 2016. Obviously, President Trump is not popular in Massachusetts, and transportation is still a disaster. Is there a chance that in the next two debates, Gonzalez can do something that makes this a race, or are we off to the races at this point and it's Baker's to lose? You know, you can go broke uh, because I have gone broke over the years. 
trying to predict the outcome of elections. You know, I cannot read the minds of a couple of million people. Uh, so, uh, you know, I would never write off anybody in advance of the day. However, the polls are pretty consistent. Uh, there is one thing in those polls, though, that's a slight glimmer of hope for Gonzalez. Baker's weakest showing is among younger women, mm. a women under 40. Uh, he still wins close to 50% of them, but it's the only group, the only demographic that I've seen him uh, registering under 50% with. And we talked, John, about how they are motivated as a generation to vote in the midterms, but will they show up? Well, this is the big this question. Is the question. You do have Elizabeth Warren at the top of the ticket, kind of summoning women to come out, not just here, but elsewhere around the country. Right. But And the uh, Brett Kavanaugh confirmation. And you have uh, women, no question, many, many uh, women are furious about what happened with that and looking for a way to vent that, and here come the midterms. If they swamp the polls in greater than expected numbers, the, get, the huge gap that you're seeing between Baker and Gonzalez could narrow in a hurry. Could it narrow enough to spring the upset of the millennium? I wouldn't go nearly that far, but it's something that bears watching. We'll see how much work Taylor Swift can do between now and Election Day. <laughs> Today is our official kickoff to October Breast Cancer Awareness Month, and our charity partner, the Breast Cancer Research Foundation, is entering its 25th year awarding grants to researchers around the world. And... Myra Biblowit, the president of the Breast Cancer Research Foundation, or BCRF, is joining us. Thank you for being here in your pink. In my pink, we chose well <laughs> in right. our hue. You grew up in Brockton. I grew up in Brockton. I don't think people realize no. that the leader of this organization that people love so much is a local girl. A local girl. <laughs> I went to Thayer Academy. Mm -hmm. I went to Tufts. I have a master's from Brandeis. So Amazing. my roots are here. You're here. And one of the things that I think is stupendous about the research grant money that you deliver is that if money is donated from people in the Boston area, it's given to Boston Space researchers. Right Talk about that a little bit. But we always say at every event we do, and we do two events a year, we do a luncheon, there's one coming up on November 2nd, and we do a gala in the spring, we say the money that's raised in Boston stays in Boston, and we augment it with, a, with funds that we raise around the country and around the world. Mm -hmm. But everything raised here supports great research here. And the numbers at this point are really staggering. How many countries, how much money have you given away? This year we're awarding a record $63 million in grants wow. uh, to researchers, Three hundred researchers across 14 countries and we've raised cumulatively close to about 788 million dollars and, and so many women who are breast cancer survivors might not realize that their treatment came directly because of the research funded by That's your donors right. you know what stands between today and cure pure and simple is funding mm. BCRF is the greatest engine. We are today the largest global funder of breast cancer research worldwide. And research is the reason that the face of breast cancer has changed for women. Research is the reason that there's been a 40% decline in breast cancer deaths since BCRF was founded. That's a huge number. I have a sister who's a breast cancer survivor. She had it very young. And I think so many people who have survivors in their family are so grateful that what BCRF really does is 
you're able to cut through kind of the red tape that That's the right. government grants require, right? right. Explain how well, you give out the there's money. A, there's a dearth of federal funding to begin with, and what it means is that the federal dollars are given to, I don't want to say plain vanilla, but given to projects where the answers are really in front of you. Mm -hmm. We fund the high-risk, high-reward research. We fund the speculative, seminal new ideas, which if they hit the mark, can cut decades off getting benefit to patients. Right. And we all know so many brilliant physicians and researchers here in the Boston area are hard at work every day, and every this is day. the kind of funding that they always cry out for. That's right. So, Myra, tell me about growing up in Brockton. I don't think a lot of people realize when they see the pink ribbon, when they see Breast Cancer Research Foundation, uh, that a local girl runs a this local whole girl. operation. Well, I'm a very lucky local girl. <laughs> what did your parents do? Um, my father was in real estate. Mm -hmm. My mother worked in his office. She mm -hmm. used to say that he paid her weekly, W-E-A-K-L-Y. <laughs> <laughs> and how did you first meet Evelyn Lauder. Well, I really got the brass ring when I met Evelyn. Um, Evelyn was on the board of the Central Park Conservancy. Mm -hmm. I was executive vice president, and we became mm -hmm. great friends. And some years later, Evelyn called me, and she said, you know, I've gone on the board of Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center, and I'm amazed at the rapid pace of research advances. And I've looked around the country, and there is no one organization with a laser-sharp focus mm. on funding research. Right. She herself was a breast cancer survivor, and she was determined to change the future right. for our mothers, our daughters, our sisters, and our friends. Of course, her mother-in-law, Estee Lauder, Yep. was the self-made woman who talked about makeup being hope in a jar. Hope in a jar. This is sort of hope in hot pink. Hope in hot pink. That people see all the time, That's right? right? There are events around the nation, but several here in Boston during yep. the year. Right. What was her initial um, idea for what this organization could do because, let's face it, the Lauder name was going to be familiar to so many women That's in America. Right. That's right. You know, when Evelyn called me, she said, I think I, Evelyn, should start a foundation because I can. Mm. And if I don't, therefore, it would be a sin. Will you help me? Mm. How can you say no to that? And truly, she gave me the opportunity of a lifetime to have a job that touches people's lives so profoundly. Transitioning the disease to a manageable chronic disease or even cure was something we could only have dreamed of. Sure. But BCF has really stood the test of time and proven the efficacy mm. of Evelyn's vision yeah. and truly is now answering questions about cancer writ large. Right. We now know that breast cancer isn't one disease. It's four or five different diseases, and each has more in common with other forms wow. of cancer. Right. Whether you have BRCA1 or BRCA2 or... Right, the, but the certain cancers, it, now if a woman is diagnosed, there's mm -hmm. the opportunity to drill down to identify the tumor type right. and then to pluck from the armamentarium the right treatment for that tumor type. What do you think is the next big hurdle in breast cancer research that you're hoping there will be a breakthrough? The next big opportunity? Yes. I think it's immunotherapy. Mm. Um, can you harness the body's immune, own immune system to fight cancer? Mm. We know that that's been proven in melanoma. We are funding a bunch of studies, some here in Boston, to see if immunotherapy works in breast cancer. Can the immune system be taught to recognize the cancer 
Mm. and attack it because right now cancer puts up a shield right. and we are funding some very important studies uh, right here in Boston on immunotherapy. That's the future. Right. That's one of the big opportunities. One of the other big things is liquid biopsy. Everyone dreads a, a biopsy. Mm -hmm. It's a tissue biopsy. It's invasive. You have to schedule it. Right. You wait on pins and needles for results. What we now find is that tumors slough their DNA into the bloodstream. Oh, wow. And it is possible, and we're funding studies to standardize the ability to do a blood biopsy, wow. which means a blood test, mm -hmm. how much more simple is that, okay. which can give you an immediate time answers. And that's really what people should understand when they see the pink ribbon and they give to breast cancer research is that it can lead to cures for so many other cancers right. as well. I always say that breast cancer is like the hub of the wheel, but the research provides the spokes that will accelerate the resolution of a multiplicity of other cancers because the more we drill down to the cellular basis of cancer, mm -hmm. we're talking about cancer writ large. Mm -hmm. So thanks to women leading the charge. Thanks to Myra Biblowit from Brockton to the BCRF. Oh, leading my, thanks the organization. for having me. It's an honor to be here in my so hometown. So nice to talk to you. This is Greater Boston, cradle of American democracy. So this week we got a shocking report from the UN about what it calls an impending global crisis as a result of climate change. This is a study commissioned by the UN, 132 authors drawing on 6,000 peer-reviewed research articles, and there are several headlines out of it. They argue if we don't keep global temperature rise below 2.7 degrees Fahrenheit, they warn of mass food shortages, droughts, extreme heat, wildfires, and mass die-off of our coral reefs by 2040, which is sooner than expected. And they expect us to hit that 2.7 degree mark, in fact, sooner than previously thought, potentially as soon as 2030. And they also argue that drastic action has to be taken if we're going to avoid this. A reduction in greenhouse gas emissions, they say, by 45 percent by 2030, so in about 12 years, and 100 percent by 2050. So we decided for the podcast this week, I was talking yesterday with our meteorologist Eric Fisher about this, and we had a very interesting chat about whether or not reducing greenhouse gas emissions by that amount is achievable, what we can do in the short term, what we can do in the long term. So first, Eric, the question is, define this 2.7 degrees threshold. This is 2.7 degrees rise from pre-industrial temperatures, global temperatures? Right. So we're tracking a global temperature. So we know that, you know, in any given week, month, year here in maybe Massachusetts or New England, you can have big swings. You can have cold months. You can have very warm stretches. And that's a little tiny part of the earth. And we follow our trends, of course. But to kind of gauge the health of the planet, we look at global averages over long periods of time, the entire globe. And it's increasingly more easy to measure that because of technology, you know, satellites, mm -hmm. the way we can actually cover all of the Earth and measure its changes from year to year. So they are worried that we could hit this 2.7 degree rise from those pre-industrial levels by 2030, 2040, whatever it might be. They argue maybe it's possible to roll this back and stop us from getting to that 2.7 degree rise. You think... Probably not. I think that ship has kind of sailed. You know, we've been talking about uh, global warming for decades, decades. It's been in the national conversation. The research has been there and there have been some strides. The U.S. is cutting emissions. We've done a pretty good job. We've really cut back on CO2 and hopefully that trend accelerates and continues. Um, but, you know, you're talking about something that it kind of defies human nature, right? I mean, we don't 
learn lessons until it hits us right on top of the head a lot of the time. Um, and so for a lot of people, they don't have that moment where they say, maybe this is a problem until it directly affects something in their daily life. Otherwise, we have all these reports, and we've seen some action for sure, but CO2 lasts in the air for a very long time in our atmosphere. Mm. So what's there is there. It's already baked in, in a way. It's baked in for decades to come. And what we tend to see is that a lot of that energy ends up getting into our oceans, and then it gets released in these big El Nino events. So what we see is a gradual, continuous rise, but a a big El Nino event sets a new plateau. And then we're kind of rising a little bit, and then there's another El Nino event, and we go up a little bit higher. And that's how our averages have really been moving up in the past few decades. Here's my question for people, because, you know, we see these UN reports that come out. Mm -hmm. We see all the reports. We see the the sea level issues Boston Harbor is going to have. You've done a lot of stories about that, Eric, and we've seen the models, right? Yeah, big increase in what we call sunny day flooding, Uh, flooding without a storm, basically. We've seen all of these reports, all this information. Then you have a whole swath of the country uh, that really doesn't believe it at all, mm-hmm. that, that human influence on climate change isn't really going to have an impact back and forth. My question for you as a meteorologist is, the person in the middle who hears both extremes, and then for the significant numbers of people who hear this, what do you say to them? A very well-known broadcaster saw this UN report that came out and the headline and the message was they've done it again. The UN says we have 10 years left to save the world from climate change. This is the third time in 30 years they've said we have 10 years. So to Rush Limbaugh's audience, when he saw this report come out, right, he'll, he goes back and he quotes a scientist who was on with David Brinkley in 1985 who said to David Brinkley, We've only got 20 years. If we don't act, our world will forever change in ways we will not recognize. And uh, we're talking about rising sea levels, melting ice caps, glaciers. Florida would be overrun. New York City would be overrun. The middle of the country would be desert. Uh, And this was 1985. And then another 10 years after that and 10 years after that. And now this. So to the person who says, yeah, you know, we've been hearing these reports for years. You're saying the CO2 is baked in. What, what am I supposed to believe and what are we supposed to do? I would point out that Rush Limbaugh had to evacuate his waterfront home last year in Florida I'm when sure. a hurricane came through. I'm sure. A so lot of it is all about extreme weather. But what a lot of these people do, if you're on a, a very extreme viewpoint, and I'm kind of a gray area kind of guy, I'm very centrist in a lot of ways that I look at these things. If you're an extreme person, you find the most extreme headline from whatever, and then you exploit it to make your point, which is what they tend to do. And it goes up both ways on both sides. So what I would say is we have seen significant changes. The Arctic is melting. That's not something that hasn't happened. We are right. losing tremendous amounts of I was going to say Arctic a lot of those things that you list have happened. They have actually happened, yes. And we're getting closer and closer, and the trend has been steady. I mean, by every metric, we're seeing the world warm. Uh, we've seen tremendous loss in habitat. We've seen ex- tremendous loss in species of animals and diversity that's out there. There have been very significant changes. They might just not be changes that hit you every day. You know, when you walk out in your daily life, they don't stick out to you. Um, And I think that if you look at some of the most extreme predictions, they're set up to fail. They're going to fail. Um, But the prediction of the warming of the planet is working out pretty much just as planned. And we are seeing that lack of ice, that decreasing ice. And we're seeing the highest impacts at the highest latitudes, which is also expected. We're seeing all these records for heat being broken in places like Norway and Scandinavia and Alaska. A lot of that stuff is 
pretty much as predicted. So as a gray area person, what do you think is a practical matter governments mm-hmm. can do? Well, you know, I think that a lot of people also, it needs to be messaged in the proper way. Um, if someone who is very passionate about their belief in it is shrill about it to someone who's a skeptic, it's going to make them more skeptical. And what they found in places like, say, the middle of the country, which tends to be more conservative, is they package it with different wording. So mm. they may put it in a, a way of um, framing it in mitigation or what it means for your grain sales or here's how to plant for a changing world. And then people are totally on board because that fits their framework. Instead of in the apocalyptic language. It. Exactly. I think that people get tone deaf to it if you use it too much, even if it is a serious issue. I also think that, you know, people need to understand what there's high confidence in with climate change. Where do we have the highest confidence in how things are changing? The highest confidence is on temperatures. We're seeing many more record highs. We're seeing increasing warmth. And we're seeing many fewer record lows. Where do we have the lowest confidence? Things like tornadoes. We don't see any trend in tornadoes. Things like the tropics. We don't see an increasing trend in a number of tropical cyclones across the globe. In fact, there's a slight decreasing trend, which is what some people have put out there. Mm-hmm. We do see uh, increasing risk of high precipitation events, a storm that puts down a ton of rain in a very short amount of and time. And we have so the seen intensity. a lot of that. We have seen The that. intensity of storms. Yeah, there was actually just, uh, they redrew some of the flood maps in Texas because a one in 500 year probability storm is now happening so frequently that they have to change the odds. So we are seeing those changes, but certain things are more confident than others. The tropics is not an area of confidence. Tornado severe weather is not an area of confidence, but temperatures, sea ice, sea level rise, those are things of high confidence. One of the questions I have, is there a possibility that as we get to 2.7 degrees, because you think that's going to happen and probably beyond that temperature rise, is it possible that at some point the changes accelerate because as you're melting more and more ice, you potentially are releasing mercury from under that ice and the changes we've already seen in terms of sea level rise and precipitation, all that actually get even worse at a faster clip? That's what they're aiming for with these reports and this research. They're trying to find the tipping point, which is kind of a phrase people might have heard. Where things might become even more exponential or start to run away when you start to introduce these feedback loops. They're trying to figure out a spot and a target to try to hit to get or to prevent that from happening, essentially. Um, Because like we talked about, it's in the air and it's going to be there for a long time. So there's no way to just pause what you're doing and kind of take things back. Um, And so I think overall... Do we know for sure? I mean, we got the best scientific minds out there trying to figure out exactly what that tipping point is. Maybe we don't know entirely, but they're trying to get us on the road to reducing these emissions. The U.S. is has been doing that. Hopefully we can continue that. You got to get the whole global community on board right. Right. because well, we can do problem. one thing, but another country China China has double the emissions. Don't right. get on board. Sure. And if you're a well-to-do country like you at the U.S., you know, you go to India where people, not everyone, but many people are in dire straits or in Africa where they're burning fires to try to stay warm in the colder spots or to cook their food, it's not going to go over well. Um, We've already kind of come through that point in our country's Mm -hmm. life cycle where we're now a developed nation. There are many that are not, and they all start with these inefficient, dirty fuels. What do you make of negative emissions technology? That's something that's mentioned in the report where we could actually potentially 
undo some of the damage you say is already done by taking the carbon dioxide out of the air, maybe putting it in the ground. Where do we stand on that technology? Do you believe in that technology? I think we can do it. I think that, you know, we put our mind to something. Humans are pretty clever and they can fix problems. Um, it's a very dangerous road to go down as well, because to start it, you would have to A, develop the technology, and then B, you'd have to say, what's the optimal amount Right. Of CO2 in the air. Do we know what the, is it 380 parts per million? Is it 350? Is it 410? Is today's climate just fine? Would and then you, who makes that determination? And who makes the determination? Who's at the table negotiating that? So you also don't know the uh, unintended consequences when you start to mess around with the climate system. So to me, it... It's possible. I don't know if we want to end up going down that road. We never thought there'd be a cure for polio, but there well, is. That's so. the thing. I mean, we can solve problems, really big problems. I mean, just a few decades ago, we put a hole in the ozone layer. Yes, acid and rain, right? Acid rain. These are problems we addressed. The smog over LA. And largely fixed, and we figured out what the problem was. Oh, we have CFCs in the air, and they're causing major damage and ozone depletion. And, and then so they banned now, CFCs. And they banned it. And here we are. And now we have a much smaller hole. It's repairing itself. Um, things like diseases, we put our mind to it. Uh, so we can tackle this problem one way or another, whether it's through a mixture of taking less of those greenhouse gases out of the equation or if it's adaptation and a certain level of, well, we have to do at least this much. So let's do this to try to shield ourselves from any impacts. And I think you're right. I think people have to really work on and focus on the language around Being science. shrill might work for some people, but I think for Not the large work for majority, the general public. no, you just can't yell in someone's face and say, everything's going to go to, you the know what, the, the handbasket, the end is near, <laughs> right. and we have to change everything or it's going to be catastrophe. And people are right. like, exactly. oh, you know, I've heard that Not before. really. Yeah. <laughs> Eric Fisher, thank you, man. Thanks, Go to your Eric. forecast. My pleasure. Each day, hundreds of thousands of people pour into the one square mile of downtown, mile of downtown So everybody loves architecture, right? It's one of the great things about living in greater Boston. We have some of the most magnificent examples of historical architecture, the State House. The City the, Hall. The Bullfinch. Uh, uh, <laughs> yeah. getting there. Don't jump the gun, Liam. Uh, you're already getting my blood boiling. But Old North Church. Oh, oh yeah, oh, sure. fabulous stuff. And some modern, the, uh, the Ray St uh, Stata building over at MIT, some of the most innovative modern architecture. But we also have some of the worst botch jobs uh, in the country. <laughs> you mentioned Boston City Hall. That, to me, is just worst. an abysmal, uninhabitable tomb, <laughs> hideous inside and out. Brutalism doesn't even cover it. Oh, br <laughs> brutalism is too kind. But uh, there's a new nominee here brought to our attention by our producer, Jonathan Case. Uh, kind of hard to describe this to you on a radio podcast, but uh, you can easily go online and take a look at it. It's Tetris. It, it oh, it does look like Tetris. It looks like Tetris. It looks like Tetris. If you were bad at playing Tetris. But um, it looks like a stack of books. It, yeah. Yeah, it does. That's it looks like, like a 19-story stack of books. It's going to house the computer science and math and statistics departments. And, uh, yeah, I'm a total Luddite when it comes to architecture. I really don't like much that was built after 1930. <laughs> but uh, I like this. I do, too. I, I think it's, you know, it sort of fits in with the architecture long comm mm -hmm. Okay. And it, as you suggest, it sort of suggests learning. and It's the it, epitome of Boston. And the right? uneven stacking creates some terraces right. that uh, I assume students can enjoy and stuff like that. What well, do you think, Well, Liam? can I just say that 
I do generally like the idea. It's apparently going to be the tallest building uh, on campus, and it seems a little tall. I also don't like if you go see it online. Some of the facades seem as though – does that seem windowless? So that they're different? It just looks like it's a blank facade. Yeah. Yeah. And perhaps there's the opportunity for some kind of video component where, right. you know, like the uh, the Channel 2 building mm-hmm. overlooking the pike. There are video Where they screens. have a big video wall there. Right. Uh, that provides a visual element. You could run, uh, be, you could run old John Silver speeches. That's true. And, uh, <laughs> you know, other you interesting stuff up there. Games. Uh, the BU Terrier football um, from the it, archives. Mayor Menino was constantly bemoaning the fact that so much of our architecture in downtown Boston was either un interesting they didn't have great caps to them or interesting top which is i think why we have seen better buildings in the last few years but for a university campus and for in boston i just think it's kind of perfect and go ahead leo i was going to say do we have a plagiarism scandal brewing here though architectural plagiarism because jonathan has found a picture of a building that was just approved to go up in the back bay as well that looks almost exactly the same Almost exactly the the, same. Except the stacks are kind of thicker, right? The stacks are a little thicker. It's all window facades. So it's different in that way, but it looks like a big stack of books that are kind of um, staggered in the way they're placed. I mean, uh, no two snowflakes are alike, although they all look alike. Is is God a plagiarist for creating all those snowflakes? Well, I'll tell you something. I like this a whole lot better than that abomination on the uh, part of the Harvard uh, Business School campus, right up the street from WBZ here. You know the one I'm talking about, the big white, I believe it's graduate student housing, right at where Western Avenue intersects with the river. That is the most hideous, (laughs) horrible pile of crap I have ever seen. It looks like a factory. It's one Western Avenue. One Western Avenue if you want to go look at the building. It's a combination of 1950s high-rise public housing that should be condemned, (laughs) along with a psychiatric ward. And a (laughs) turn-of-the-century factory where women are being abused. Uh, Just horrendous. (laughs) uh, Constructed... Uh, like sort of like uh, Lincoln Logs, <laughs> so that the lawn underneath that's, I guess, supposed to, uh, overlooking the river, supposed right. to be a lounging and play area, I guess, for the residents, is constantly in shadow. <laughs> Makes for lots of fun for the kids in the winter time. Great in Boston. No way sunlight can penetrate and there. And the windows are all asymmetrical. There's no pattern to the windows as well, which... I think some of these architects need to take a cue from Banksy. Yes. And build these new buildings so that if people don't like them, everyone <laughs> they just shred themselves. By the way, the architect that designed this is going to be listening to this podcast. Oh, yeah. Very upset at us. Well, listen, there is no. You got to be able to take your. Abuse. That's right. There is no snippier, more annoying group than architecture buffs. I vented my spleen about Boston City Hall and that that horror show on the Charles in the past. You wouldn't believe the hate mail. Oh, really? Oh, you the you know nothing. Mail? You know. People defend wow. Boston City Hall. Oh, absolutely. Oh, Brutalism has oh, a big yes. fan club. Oh, yeah. There's Was the guy that did Boston several. City Hall the same guy that did the UMass Dartmouth campus? Because sure. it looks very – if you go very to UMass similar. Dartmouth campus, well, my brother went the, to UMass Dartmouth. Uh, brutal, and, it looks a lot. Paul it's brutalism. Brutal. 
And he there's did, he did Boston City Hall. He did, did uh, uh, Dartmouth. Did he uh, also uh, do the City Hall? I wonder if it's the same person yeah. because. And then there's the building at the corner of is New Chardon and Cambridge Street. It was featured in the movie The Departed. Yes, oh, with yeah. that outdoor staircase. That is the outdoor st- that is the same architect. Yes, there you go. That is the, the same, same architect one. did UMass Dartmouth Hall and Rudolph Boston City Hall. Yeah. Govern- no, Government Service Center. I'm looking at yeah. Mr. Rudolph, please stop. <laughs> when uh, will- by the way, I think he's dead. He's dead. <laughs> right. <laughs> May when he rest will his in peace. abuse of Boston? <laughs> Uh, no, it is uh, the Boston yeah. City Hall is someone completely different. Okay, yeah. all right. And, and you know, don't forget, uh, along with the wretched c- City Hall, is the horrendous City Hall Plaza. Yeah, right, which is just the uh, which finally I think they've settled yeah. on what to do with that scar in the city, they've which is to just cover it with as much crap as possible. <laughs> all due respect, I mean, the skating rink and the sure. food stalls and the outdoor markets, great, bring some life back to it, mm-hmm. but you can't do anything with that yeah. plaza other than cover it up. They made sort of the same mistake on the campus of Boston College, which has the gothic main original buildings, and in honor of Tip O'Neill in the early 80s, they built a very stark white stone block of a library across a brick plaza that looked just like City Hall Plaza. And in the years that have passed, they terraced that, they got rid of that brick, and all new buildings on the campus at BC seem to be, uh, they're trying to blend the stone in with the Gothic architecture Mm. instead of Trying something new and And, you know, I'm all for open spaces in urban settings. But guess what? In Boston, Massachusetts, from about mid-November through the end of April at least, any wide open space... Is a wind tunnel. Is a wind tunnel. (laughs) You're freezing cold. The ice never melts. Brick is impossible to plow properly. Even the Greenway suffers... Yeah, the winter. Uh, don't get me started on the green one. Oh, <laughs> That's oh, another podcast for another day. <laughs> our newscasters, our editors all work as an efficient, well-coordinated fact-finding team. Well, we've covered everything from the debate to weather to architecture, and that is the latest episode of Studio BZ. We want you to subscribe and share. Uh, we have... Those pictures of Liam on Instagram still. <laughs> this is still if on the list wanna, here. If you want to look at him <laughs> anymore. Is this the, uh, the um, hunky guy the Monday? Or? Hunky yes. guy Monday. I'm sorry. I, I left that in from last week. Man, oh. man Crush Monday. By the, the way, man Paula crush. has a great idea yes. for the everyday Instagram. It's true. Have you heard about this phenomenon? This would be another great podcast guest. There are teenagers who have an Instagram account, and all they do is post the exact same photo Every morning. So there's everyday and they have kiwi. Tens, tens of thousands of followers. Every day it's the same picture of a kiwi, same picture of a toilet plunger. Yeah. So I was saying we should just have an everyday Liam Instagram account <laughs> where we give the public what it wants. And this a, a be picture a, of Liam a every day. Fresh picture every day with the guess same one. The same it could one. be the same one. Every day. These kids have tens of thousands of followers by posting the reliably same picture every because day. Because it's ironic. It's, it's ironic. ironic, you see. They're, they're trying to be ironic. Yes. By the way, the everyday Liam Instagram page would have tens of followers. <laughs> tens. Tens. And no Dozens, complaints. Maybe. So uh, our Twitter <laughs> handle here is at Studio BZ Pod. I am at Paula Eben WBZ. I am at Liam WBZ. And at Keller at Large. And we'd like to hear from you. And we'd like you to tell a friend about checking out Studio BZ. And until next time, we'll, we'll be seeing you. you.
<laughs> they, people love that. Yeah. <laughs> I, I know they do. I just sense it.